Welcome to Filmstrip, movie reviews presented by Continuous Play Podcast. These podcasts are spoiler-filled as we discuss the plots, characters, and themes of the films in review. All content used or discussed in these podcast episodes is the property of the respective owners and used under the Fair Use Act, Section 504C2, Title 17. Welcome to Filmstrip. I'm Jay. And I'm Nick. And this is our review of My Cousin Vinny, starring Joe Pesci, Marissa Tomei, Lane Smith, Fred Gwynn, Bruce Hill, Mitchell Whitfield, and Ralph Macchio. Directed by Jonathan Lynn, released in 1992 on a budget of $11 million, grossed $64.1 million at the box office, won Tomei a Best Supporting Actress at the Oscars, and often praised by attorneys for its accurate portrayal of criminal trial procedure, oddly enough. Uh, the director has a law degree from Cambridge, as it turned out, so... Uh, I didn't know that about this till I was doing a little bit of research in this one, but this was your idea, Nick, doing My Cousin Vanny, this random, you know, comedy courtroom thing from the early 90s. What uh, what made you want to take this uh, trip? I can't believe you're putting that on me, man. I just, <laughs> okay, this is how it really went. If we're going to sit there, if we're going to be like in a court of law, these are the facts, Okay. <laughs> I wrote that I was watching this, and then Jay's like, "Hey, we should podcast about it," and I'm like, "Yes." So it was. <laughs> that's how it happened. It was nothing more like, "Hey, I got an idea." It was just kind of. I was honestly, I was Friday night. The wife was working late, and I put on HBO Go, and this happened to be one of the movies on there. And I was just like, "Eh, what the hell?" You know? What yeah. I mean? So <laughs> I'm like, it's it's a movie I haven't seen in like a long, long time, and I think I remember seeing it. It was on like. Uh, I'm not going to say like Lifetime, but like one of those like woman channels that's on cable <laughs> or something like the O or We or something like that. It was on one of those like 10 years ago when I originally saw it. And I remember watching it going, ah, this ain't, actually ain't that bad. So this is only the second time I've seen it. Man, I saw this in theaters in 1992 with my entire family. All right. Well, my brother wasn't there. He was in college at the time. But the rest of us were totally there for this because it set – in Alabama. This is my state. Now, it's not shot here. It's shot in and around Georgia. But I know towns in Alabama that this could be. And as it turns out, the screenwriter got the inspiration for it from a lot of things. But he actually took a trip through the Deep South to New Orleans. And he went through Alabama and Mississippi's Gulf Coast to get there, which is the way you go. And, yeah, there are a lot of towns around that area that you, you would encounter almost all of this stuff in the early 90s, late 80s. Uh, the mud, yes, we are famous for our Alabama red clay. Yes, it will get in your tires and knock your alignment off. Uh, yeah, all of that stuff. Um, I have been to a place that served breakfast, lunch, and dinner in that order. That was the menu. Um, <laughs> I, but I've always known what a grit was. So uh, th we wanted to go for that and I'm not gonna lie. Look, the end song in this thing is a is by an artist named Travis Tritt. I don't know how familiar you are with him, uh, Nick. But when I was in high school, I was convinced zero I, I, zero J. I, I wanted to be this guy <laughs> in high school. Uh, the way he played guitar, the way he sang, everything. So I remember this very well, and. Who cannot remember Marissa Tomei from this time? Well, even from now, she still looks the same. I'm convinced she's a vampire because there's no way this woman, this woman hasn't aged in 20-something years since this movie's been made. 
Yeah, if her and Will Smith had kids, they would be vampires. I mean, that's just the way it is. <laughs> yeah, I mean, really, yeah, they both look so much like they still do. And, you know, good for them, you know. But I re- this was my introduction to her. And I'm going to tell you now, I didn't know who Joe Pesci was in 1992. It was years later when I you know, learned anything about him. And to see him do this kind of nothing throwaway comedy role and really own it the way he does – it, I loved it then. I've seen it on television several times, but it had been years since I'd even thought about this movie. I, I do remember going to see it and thinking the Karate Kid's in it, and kind of like the reason I left him last in the cast list. He's like third, actually, but he might as well have been last because he's barely in the darn thing, and you don't really uh, get him to do anything in this. He has a couple of lines early on. I think his uh, roommate or whatever gets more screen time than he does even. Yeah, I'm actually. This is really the first time you were exposed to Joe Pesci. I mean, not even like Home Alone. This was this was it. I, you know, I was not a fan of Home Alone. I, I didn't recognize him as anything I would know from Home Alone. Yes, I saw that before this, but I didn't. I didn't rewatch Home Alone a lot. I, I didn't like Macaulay Culkin at all. And so I never, I never even saw the sequel to that until many years later. So I saw Home Alone once and was just kind of done with it. So I had forgotten you know, all the, as far as I know, my first Joe Pesci experience was my cousin Vinny until you just mentioned Home Alone. And now I'm like, okay, yeah, obviously I saw him in that. So, yeah. <laughs> of course, okay, now but- I, now I know him, you know, I mean, like Casino and Goodfellas and all the other, you know, things he's done. But this was the only time I ever knew he was anything. I mean, he he is the quintessential, you know, Napoleon syndrome actor, which is, you know, <laughs> that's like such part of his like, you know, forte. Like even in this movie, I mean, that's always what he is. He's he's the little guy that you, you know, almost would expect is like going to come pump your gas or, you know, mm-hmm. so, sell you some retread tires. But he's like, you know, such the uh, the tough guy in some stuff and want to be tough guy in others. So exactly. He's, uh, I, I can't remember my first uh it would have to be Home Alone that I first like really kind of recognized Joe Pesci, you know, as a kid and stuff like that, and then kind of started putting it together. I didn't see Goodfellas until probably late nineties, I think. You know, when that came out, I was way too young for that. And <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's just as far as like Pesci goes, yeah, it was basically Home Alone and then Goodfellas, and then I was starting to pick up on a lot of his Scorsese work, you know, Goodfellas, Casino, uh, you know, Raging Bull, stuff like that. So right. yeah, I mean, it's 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 kind of a shame though. He's kind of a I wouldn't say fallen off because you know it was his choice, but he he's retired, and it was like kind of like one of these like silent retirements from the industry where he just stopped making movies, and it's kind of sad. It's like he's is one of those actors I really miss seeing out on you know new roles. Right? Yeah, he he has kind of gone away, like you say. I haven't seen him in a long time. The thing is, is this movie is also littered with a lot of other people that I know I've seen in in things. Like you've got Lane Smith, who plays the the district attorney if you will and he's been in a ton of stuff i mean he was on lois and clark son-in-law son-in-law yes <laughs> obviously he was son-in-law he's the dad and son-in-law i can't believe you remember him for that uh, but he was in the mighty ducks i mean i knew him from that you know among other things he's been in so much other stuff i mean uh but i knew him in, in a movie like red dawn he was the the mayor in that movie and i remember him he's got a face that you would recognize he's, he's been dead now for about 12 years but he he was 
was one of those guys that again I recognized from other things. Fred Gwynn. I grew up watching the reruns of the Munsters, so I, that voice I knew immediately. And Bruce McGill. I, I've got to Dad tell us better. Yeah, that is better. <laughs> that is well. Yeah, I've, we've talked about him. Bruce McGill, though, I've got to talk about here because this guy's in a ton of stuff. He got his start really in Animal House. That was the thing he broke out in or whatever. But I've, I mean, he's been in a bunch of Michael Mann movies. I like. He was in Collateral. He was in The Insider. I think he was in Ali even. But he's been in like The Sum of All Fears and Runaway Jury and you know he was in a movie with uh, Goldie Hawn that I it's worthless but it's funny because he's such a jerk coach in it it's a movie called Wildcats about a female football coach and what's weird to me is that there is a coach that I had in high school it was one of my teachers coach lamb who reminded me of this guy so much like they they looked alike even it's so funny to think about but I've seen him in stuff for years and he's still working today that's the thing he's still out there going you know in his 60s uh, but he's such a likable presence and you put Joe Pesci who's got such a an attitude when he's on screen with Marissa Tomei and all that Jersey hotness and just, you know, insane comic timing she's got in a movie with, you know, Ralph, uh, Ralph Macchio. And then you've got Herman Munster as the judge. I'm down. I mean, yeah, it's, it's a, it's a crazy idea and I shouldn't like this movie as a Southerner. This is making fun of me. This is making fun of our way of life and everything. But underneath all of it, there's actually like a real nod to like, but no, they do things the right way. Like when, when the truth comes out, obviously they change minds. I thought it, it was pretty fair to the South. Now, you're a recent transplant to the Southeast, having grown up in the Midwest in Wisconsin. And I don't know if Charlotte's like this or not, but I'm sure you've encountered places like this in all your travels to the South. Oh, yeah, yeah. I'd say more so in uh, kind of like the southern eastern part of tennessee and especially south carolina <laughs> so, <laughs> yes yes a lot of more of these uh back rural towns where you know people are charming but people are also very kind of uh closed as far as uh yeah you know like kind of always uh doing a double look at you especially when they hear my accent which apparently i have an accent that's all yeah. i hear around here but <laughs> you definitely still have held on to most of your wisconsin that's for sure so i mean you know i have mine too so it's it's part of it's part of the chart so okay so nick i i think people probably know this but maybe they're like us and it's been a while since they've seen this or in order why don't you remind folks what my cousin benny's all about all right. Well, this was also Jay's idea since our um, review of Terror Vision, where I decided to kind of change around plot summaries from certain people's point of views. <laughs> I, I originally wanted to do this from the point of view of a bowl of grits, but I didn't think I was going to get most of the movie through. And by the way, even living in the South right now, I still really don't know what grits are, but that's another. <laughs> but anyways, um, I did it from the perspective of Marissa Tomei's character. So. Right. <laughs> Bear with me. I'm trying not to be sexist or anything in here. Just trying to be funny. So it was a normal morning in Jersey. I was at the salon getting my nails done by my manicurist, Eduardo, when my fiance, Vinny, stops in. See, he knew I was going to be there because I get my nails done every other Tuesday. It's a Jersey thing. Anyways, now we have to go down to this hick town in Alabama because Vinny's cousin got himself arrested for murder. We get there and stay in this grungy motel and are awakened every morning by some steam pipe thing. Even the first day there, the local diner only had one thing for breakfast, something they call grits. Anyways... Vinny works defending his cousin, all while the local judge, judge keeps busting his balls, his courtroom mannerisms, his dress, you name it. As the trial goes on, Vinny is spending more and more time in contempt than with me. 
Of course, paying no attention to my biological clock as he worries more about his profession profession than me. As the trial comes to an end, he surprises me by calling me up for a witness. See, I worked in a garage as a mechanic before I started my career doing hair. He uses my expert testimony on the tire marks left by the car that sped away after the murder. See, it turns out Vinny's cousin's car, a Buick Skylark, couldn't have made those tracks. The only car that could that looked like the Skylark was a Pontiac Tempest. Also, some copper deputy something confirms that a Pontiac Tempest, Tempest was also found two towns over with two young men, a gun, and an independent suspension system that could have left those tracks. With the trial dismissed, we finally get to leave Alabama and finally get down to talking about getting married. Well, that certainly is a good plot summary from her point of view. <laughs> I don't know if you can watch this film from her point of view, like the way you like to do with Ash and Alien necessarily, but maybe you can. I don't know. We can, we can get to it. She's in almost all of it. That's the thing that gets me here. She's the only actress like named at all in the cast here. I mean, matter of fact, she may be the only female besides the, the one old lady witness or whatever that we really get to talk to in this whole film. And yet she's a supporting actress. I, I mean, she's really the, you know, a co-lead here, but whatever, that's an Academy thing. I'm just saying, I, I think she's just as much fun to watch here as Joe Pesci. And, uh, before we get into them though, I guess we do need to talk about the whole setup of this thing because it's all done over the opening credits. Basically the, these two guys are, they, they graduated from NYU and I, I, I think I kind of got it this time. They're going to graduate school in UCLA and they decide to go through the South because it's January and the weather's better. And no doubt we're recording this in February and it's like, you know, 75 degrees today here. So yeah, good, good, good choice guys. Uh, rather than driving through Chicago and Missouri and all these other places that still have tons of snow on the ground and weather, let's go through the South and, and head our way to California there. Never mind the fact that you added about 22 hours worth of drive to your drive, but you know, whatever they, they go to this, uh, convenience store and bill who is, uh, Ralph Macchio's character accidentally sticks it in his pocket. They walk out and like driving down the road. He's like, Oh, holy cow. I forgot to pay for this. And his you know, friend Stan is like, you man, you know what they do to you down here? The legal age for execution is 10. And sure enough, they get pulled over and in this hilarious back and forth with the cops, they finally realize, or at least Ralph Macho finally realizes, wait a minute, I'm being arrested for murdering that dude? What? And that <laughs> that is funny to me. Like, it's in the trailer, too. I remember him standing up with that whole, wait a minute, thing. It still works. Like, even, you know, knowing what's coming, I thought it was funny. I, I like the idea here. And, and what's funny to me, man, is I'm a big true crime podcast fan i think you are too how many times has like the false confession been the thing that almost derailed somebody's life oh many 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 times here here's here's my little tidbit for the kids out there you ever get arrested keep your mouth shut yeah you don't ever you do not talk to the cops ever you wait till your lawyer gets there yeah you never say anything to anyone because it just even the slightest, like the thing with Bill here is it, the sheriff says, so when did you shoot the clerk? He's like, I shot the clerk. I shot the clerk. And he says it, at, but he doesn't say it as questions. He says it as declarative statements. So it becomes part of his testimony. He said, I shot the clerk. And then he reiterated, I shot the clerk later in court. And I'm like, holy cow. But as comical as that is, you could totally see somebody being railroaded like this. Right. And I mean, look in this town, how many green cars with you know, guys that look like them are going to be rolling through? 
not that many. So it, I see how it, how it happens. Oh yeah, definitely. I mean, that, that's the whole thing was like the whole complete, like I said, you know, I, I saw this movie like 10 years ago. So I even forgot like why they were in court. I, <laughs> I honestly thought that literally when they were getting arrested that, oh, I guess maybe they are going to jail for stealing a can of tuna. I mean, <laughs> Growing, growing up in a small town myself, even though I am from the north, I know that the police out there sometimes like to kind of find stuff to do. Yeah, it's, it's, it, it should be mentioned, you're not far away from the making a murder thing. So, like, you've seen that. Mm-hmm. You saw that happen in real time. So, uh, yep. Yeah. Yep. Sometimes. But that's that's kind of what I thought, too. And it's like, wait a minute, murder and everything. And then I see these guys talking. and I'm just like shut up shut up don't <laughs> yeah. say anything and it's just like but what do you expect though i mean they're, they're they're kind of you know even though they're college graduates they're still dumb kids yeah they're naive I mean? that's the idea yeah. like they've never been through the south before they know nothing and look this is 1991 i mean this movie came out in 92 but let's say it's 1990-91 there's no internet you don't know anything about this kind of stuff right television didn't even work like it, it does nowadays we don't have this national exposure to the rest of the country's culture that we we all take for granted now the last 20 years have just you know littered us with all this stuff so it's so much easier to be exposed to this oh look at this look at this podcast is a microcosm of it i'm in alabama we got co-hosts in minnesota wisconsin north carolina and friggin' canada and kentucky you know <laughs> and so i mean we, we none of us have ever even been in the same state together much less the same room so this is a different time and you and as for a MacGuffin of a film though i do like the fact that you can totally buy how it would happen you know like it, it's not so far-fetched that it's impossible to believe yeah totally i mean was part of you even questioning though is like maybe did they do it and this is going to be kind of like a like a like a, like a third act reveal that maybe these kids were kind of bad seeds or something. This is all just kind of an act. No, it no. never came through. Your- no, no and so- I'll, I'll tell you why. And I'll tell you why it's because the karate kid is driving the car, man. <laughs> There's no way that kid could ever do it. Do it. Do it. Do it. He did an illegal sweet move. in karate <laughs> kid. This kid is, this kid can do bad. Stuff. He did get away with an illegal kick to the face. You are right. We, we forget this. That Johnny should have been awarded that point on default, but that's oh, that's a- right. Kick to the face. I'm sorry. That's another, it's- that's another podcast for another, the day i believe but uh, no I, I ralph macchio is not the kind of person i would ever assume did anything bad as a matter of fact i think funnier die did a video a few years ago about him being bad and like he uses a halfway sideways curse word or something like that you know he's just a good he was a good all-american looking kid he's a good dude and i would have never thought he was some highway robber this wasn't just cause where in the third act i found out sean connery's you know been fighting for the wrong team you know or something like that hey man i i'm so used to watching stuff like the night of or something where yeah. it's like maybe ralph macchio is gonna like get like hate tattooed on his, his I, I, I think man that we are so jaded by the Shyamalan-esque twists of, of late 90s and 2000 cinema that we just expect this all to break bad and it, to be that way but that's not what this movie is it's not the era it came from and it's certainly not the message it wants to have and the funny thing is is that it's not even about him he drops out of the movie five minutes into it really it's all about thank, these uh, thank these god <laughs> though man i'm gonna i'm gonna put this out here right now ralph macho there's a reason he doesn't have a career okay <laughs> he's not a good actor he's got like that 
wholesome face. You know what I mean? Kind of like that teen heartthrob look that he had in the eighties. But it's like when you see him act, it's like you you can almost see him like reading cue cards that like the like the assistant director's holding up next to the camera for him. He's not very good. So the less time with him, the better. He looked young. That's the thing. He was thirty when they made this movie. All right, and he still looked like he was in his early twenties. He's always looked young. He still looks young today. He's in his fifties. He doesn't look like he's in his fifties. You know, I mean, he's just that's his look, and that's what he did. And he was an era of Hollywood for that. So you know, good on him. But yeah, he doesn't have a career. A big one at least that, that we know of but he was in things that people remember and like you say it's not even about him anyway this is all about Vinny and really Mona too coming in here and I love how they roll into town in this car and it just slings around the corner and like does a slide turn you know <laughs> to get into town but what's funny to me is they set up so much stuff it's like Chekhov's mud or Chekhov's mechanic here and the first thing I didn't realize how much they set up about how these two, the way they relate to each other is they do rip on each other. You know, they're, they're, you know, brash New Yorkers, right? With their, you know, huge hair and their leather <laughs> studded outfits and all this <laughs> stuff. But like, she knows a buttload about cars Jay, and so does Jay. he. And this isn't even like a time thing. Like I said, I, I know one of my friends is from New York, mm -hmm. Italian talks like this and still dresses like yes <laughs> i was texting him when i'm watching the movie i'm like dude you, you are so joe pesci in this movie <laughs> hey i had those boots <laughs> hey, I, I i was actually laughing about that because that was like one of the things like i did when i moved down here yeah. was i bought a pair of cowboy boots because like oh, that's kind of a popular trend <laughs> you, you just like need that. them it's yes you everybody but i love that he's got boots and like he went out of his way to bring those like i'm wearing boots and she yeah you blend <laughs> You know, and what's funny is those boots make a return in Michael Myers' uh, oeuvre in Halloween 5. That's the man in black's boots. But, but no, I love their their intro scene here. And the first thing we get from them is that they're loud. They don't really look like they certainly don't fit in, but they completely go together. You know, and can we just talk about Marissa Tomei for a minute and not be complete, you know, hounds about it? Just the way she looks is so striking. All the outfits they put this woman in in the movie when she's in public are so like garish. Like she's got that white Cruella DeVille streak in her hair and she's got those huge sunglasses and all that bangly jewelry and these weird, you know, well, she, loud she's mafia, clothes. She's a mafioso wife. I mean, that's, yeah. that's how she looks. I mean, they, they totally played it up that, you know, it's like Joe Pesci and his, you know, Goodfellas repertoire as far or like, you know, image. And they did her up as like a guma in a way. And it's just like, <laughs> that's exactly what it is. I mean, I was like looking at some of her outfits and I'm just like, holy crap, that was actually a thing. I mean, there, there's a scene in the movie too, where she's like wearing like this, like, you know, like, you know, girls today wear leggings. It's like a body legging suit. Not, not, not many women could pull that off, but she did. So no, 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 she did. And that's the thing is you realize like she's pulling all this off. And you also realize that fashion takes 20 year cycles. And so you see it coming back in some ways. The thing that I love about her character though, and I don't think it's a mistake at all is out in public. That's what she looks like. Right. But the best scenes she has are in the hotel rooms with him when she's got all of her makeup off, her hair's pulled up, you know, and like, she's just in like a t-shirt or whatever. And she just, you know, she's, just herself. And I love, she just sitting around, you know, trying to help him. And he's so bullheaded. He can't let her help. You know, her best stuff is when she's out of all of that facade, you know, and really you get that too. Like they have that whole cute thing on the bed early on when he's trying to figure something out and she starts, you know, 
doing all that, you know, Carling go back and forth with him. And like, they have that whole, uh, foreplay thing where she, you know, clearly she knows what she's talking about and gets him to argue a little bit. I think it's right after a scene when, when Ralph Macchio says, you got to see these people argue. And then we get to see, you know, Vinny argue a little bit with this woman. You set up two things that are going to be important is one is when this guy is comfortable, he is really good. And we'll see that later in court is he starts really tearing apart some witnesses once he gets on a roll. And two, she is really smart. And just just because she looks like the Gambino hairdresser, you know, the mafioso wife or whatever, doesn't mean she can't hold her own with them. And I I really like the fact that she's not just this put upon trophy wife, if you will. Well, I think it's also, I mean, I think when they come down there, it's like they're almost like putting on a persona that they would have put on back home, almost like that's how they were expected to act when they're in Jersey as far right. as like the bickering and fighting. But when you like see them behind closed doors, it, it's a lot different of a relationship. I mean, it's still there as far as the bickering goes, but it's not so theatrical as what it is when they're out in the public. And I just think that's something where we're supposed to take it. That's how they are expected to act as a couple in public when they're back home. So exactly. I just, yeah. No, I, what I liked is too. They have that moment, and it comes up two or three times throughout the film where she like got stiffed, you know, trying to get bail money for for Vinny after he's been thrown in contempt of court and thrown in jail the first night. And he finds they're eating breakfast, and he says, "Wait a minute, you got stiffed?" And like they go back to the pool hall together, you know, and the record like scratches when they walk in the door. And I love the whole play back and forth they have. I don't know if you recognize that actor, Chris Ellis. He's played JT. He's been in a billion things now or whatever. But they have this whole thing where Vinny's like, oh, you mean you could kick my butt or I can get $200? I think I'll take the $200. Like they, they never even, the guy never even pays up, right? Like, but they never have to beat the crap out of him either because Vinny talks him down so much. And that's, I mean, how many times have you seen Joe Pesci do that to somebody in a gangster film where like he just starts looking at him and says, if you ever say something like that to my friend again, I'm going to kill you. And you, you buy it. You know, and well, I mean, in a casino, he stabs people with, you know, fountain pens and shit like that. But usually he can just talk his way through anything. And I think that's what they, they're setting up and doing so well here is that while this guy sucks in court to begin with, he's actually really good at this stuff once he gets on a roll. Yeah, when he's in his element, he's really good. And that, that's one of the things I think like Joe Pesci is always used like in his roles or he's casted for is like. It's almost like a guy where, because of his stature and his size, because he is a very small guy, yeah. by, even by Hollywood standards, it's like, you know, when he's in that bar and he's trying to get that $200 that this guy stiffed from uh, his, you know, his, his fiance in a pool game, it's like he's using his height and his stature to his advantage because the guy's like, you know, like, oh, you're going to fight me? Oh, ha, ha, ha. And he just like is like going on on all these different tangents and using his intelligence to completely whittle this guy down almost to like a, a, like a like a child. I mean, there's even scenes later in the movie where the guy shows up and he's like, oh, yeah, I got the 200 bucks and let's fight. And he's like, is that just a 20 that's wrapped over ones, you know? <laughs> and he's like, no. And he goes, you sure? You know, and he's like, go get the money and then come back. And he's like, I got it. I got it. You know? And it's like. <laughs> Yeah, he never comes back with it. Yeah, he's just, yeah, they never pay it off. But I love that, though. He's just, again, that he's like, I'm not afraid of any of you, really. Um, Which is, what's so funny is he's completely intimidated by the judge. And who wouldn't be, by the way? Fred Gwynn, man, I mean, he's a, he looks like a monster anyway. That face, that long, you know, face with those dark circles under his eyes. And just put out of your mind everything you know about Judd Crandall for a minute, right? From Pet Cemetery. He has a very intimidating, you know, bass voice and the way he looks. And also, 
He's got it's the, it's the eyes. It's it the is. eyes in that face. I mean, it's just like almost like he's just when he's talking, he's talking through you. And right. That's like, yeah. And, and I love though that like everything he's calling him on is like real lawyer stuff. Like, no, what you want to do is skip all the way to this, but this is a preliminary hearing, and we're not going to do that just because you want to. We're going to follow procedure. And like he's stuck on, no, we're going to do this piece by piece. And that's what I love. You know, all these movies always do this, right? Is that somebody gets arrested and two weeks later they're in trial. In real life, it probably takes a year, a year and a half. In this one, it's like two months and they finally go to trial. So that's, while that's a little fast, I could buy it in a small town. Maybe they didn't have a lot of crime to prosecute at this point. But I I like the fact that they make us go through all those steps and things that he is very much about order and you're going to do it the right way. And I love how he busts on Pesci about everything. Like you can't, you know, I want you dressed in something in cloth when you come in this courtroom and all that friggin' leather and stuff. It's, it's awesome. man. the, the play back and forth that those two have is so good. It's, it's, but it's, it's like a reverse though on the bar stuff where Mm -hmm. Joe Pesci is tearing down that guy, but when he comes into court, he's getting teared down by the judge. It's just like, because he's, he's got no recourse there. He's not going to be able to go up there and go punch him in the face. Well, but, but unlike the courtroom where Vinny's never been in a courtroom, he's been in a billion bar fights. You know, yeah. and been stiffed by somebody that didn't want to pay up on a bet. And so he, he know like you said, he's got his element and he doesn't really get his element. And I mean, they even keep saying this is like, once he gets on a roll, he'll be fine. And once he finally does get on a roll, he is fine. That's the funny thing about it. And I, I think one of the best scenes is him and Lane Smith, the, the Trotter character, the DA had this scene where they talk about basically how they got into law and Trotter's telling him, you know, I used to be a, a the defense attorney and I couldn't really live with myself. So I've been, you know, putting people away for 20 years, blah, blah, blah. And I love Vinny tells this story about how he got a traffic ticket and he went and argued it in court and, you know, argued against the officer and got him to admit he was lying and won his case. And the judge just liked him so much that he basically like mentored him through law school while he was working as a mechanic. And I thought, well, what? A, I mean, what a, but it was a real, and it comes back later where, you know, uh, Marissa Tomei ends up calling that judge to basically run some interference for him so that the, the Alabama judge will lay off of him. And I thought, well, that, that's a cute story though, but it's very real. Like it's, I could totally see that happen. I've seen a ton of people who they impress somebody and the next thing you know, that person just becomes their biggest champion. And I thought, you know, sometimes that's all somebody needs is somebody on their side. Yeah, I mean, my my favorite scene in the movie, though, is when Joe Pesci, you know, he respects the judge and he goes out and gets a new outfit. (laughs) And it's like this just something I I don't even know what era this is out of. It's like a like a felt purplish. Oh, wait, wait, wait. to be to be fair, he gets a real suit or whatever. And then they end up like staying at the the D.A.'s hunting cabin so they can finally get some rest and they still don't get any rest. And he falls down in the mud and has stuff all over him. So he has to go and like, he makes this whole thing about, I went to go buy a suit and everybody at the store had the flu. So the whole store was closed. So I went to a secondhand store and he gets this, like, uh, it's, it's a, it's like something Prince would wear. It's like almost like a well, crushed velvet it's, type suit. It's like a, it's like an old Confederate Mississippi string tie, Southern <laughs> gentleman, Colonel Sanders kind of suit. But you're, you're right. It's this faded, like mauve color. It looks ridiculous, but he has this whole thing about, Look, I'm not trying to disrespect you. This is what happened. And I I wore this for you. <laughs> and then, but then I love how he's like, You're in contempt of court. He's like, That's a real effing surprise. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but that but that's like the best thing. He's like, what? and he's like, What'd you say? And he goes, What? What? 
Uh, <laughs> yeah. I didn't say anything. He's just like looking at him like, what the hell? I mean, it's yeah. just, it's just, but it's like the only person that could ever pull that off is Pesci. I mean, yeah. he's just got kind of like that, huh? What? <laughs> well, I mean, that's the thing is in the movie, he's never, like he sleeps about an hour a night because the steam whistle at the local plant wakes him up. The friggin', you know, cows the wake tra- him up. The pigs wake the him up tra- in the morning. The train. The train. The tra- no, it usually comes told- at four in the morning, which is funny to me because I live in a college town, but there are train tracks not far from the campus and here. And every now and then late at night, early in the morning, you can hear the, the train rolling by. So I, I got a little chuckle out of that. Yeah, it's so. like you told me that train doesn't come by at five o'clock. Yeah, yeah. it co- usually comes by right after four. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's like, uh, but you know, that's the thing is he is so good with his face, Pesci is, at letting you know, like, I'm so sleepy. <laughs> if I could, and what happens is he ultimately, the first night he's in that goofy suit, he's like, no, don't bail me out. I'm going to stay in prison tonight. Maybe I'll sleep. And there's like a prison riot going on behind him and he is just gone. <laughs> So it's because, you know, that's the old thing about New Yorkers can sleep through anything except sounds of the country. Right. And that's what I thought was funny is like, yeah, he's finally in his own element. He's like, uh, I can sleep in jail. So, <laughs> I just I just look at that. He was just so exhausted that like yeah. nothing was going to wake him. up. Yeah, it is that way. I mean, he is kind of kind of ridiculous. But yeah, the thing is, Vinny is like is terrible at first. Like he really doesn't know what he's doing. And Mona, it, this is the the coolest thing about this chick is she's like starts reading the procedure book after he thinks, "Ooh, I got the DA to give me all of his evidence." She's like, "Moron, he's supposed to." <laughs> you know, and she's read half the book. But they have this great moment later on where he talks about how scared out of his mind he is and she's like yeah you should be (laughs) this is pretty intense you know but they they really relate there but this whole thing with him is like he doesn't want anybody to help him but every time mona steps in and helps him it advances his case like he goes and talks to the witnesses and he starts to figure out this one's blind as a bat he can't see out this dude's windows because they're dirty and this guy doesn't know you know says he cooked grits in five minutes well i just heard from this guy that it takes 20 so we're not doing that and so like he learns everything he needs to know because of her intervention that's the whole subplot of the film they totally copied this on total on legally blonde <laughs> with, the, with the perm they totally caught the, the grit thing turned into a perm thing <laughs> you know what yeah i do think they've used the the comic timing of this and other other pieces for sure but uh no well, I, the whole thing too well even speaking of reese witherspoon it's like so much of this movie actually was reminding me of a uh, sweet home alabama it does have speaking a little bit of, of that yeah so uh except i will say our characters here with their southern accents aren't that far off from what I know a lot of people to talk like, like the judge I've known people that talk like him. I can go introduce you to the guy that Lane Smith's character reminds me of here in the town I live in. I like, see him every day, you know? <laughs> and so, and, and the sheriff, I've met 50 of those. Like I, I know these people. These are, this is why, again, why I think I really took to this film when I was younger was I knew all these people. I mean, it wasn't the town I lived in, but like 20 minutes outside of where I was from, I knew I knew exactly where this was happening. I could see it. And so I, I totally get it. I think it makes it relatable because again, it's one thing to like do the fish out of water story. When you constantly make fun of the new water, the fish is in like at some point the audience turns on it. Right. And I don't think they ever really like directly poke at anything here. That's not warranted. Like, well, I, I think, I think the big, the big thing here is that fish out of water is normally you kind of relate with the fish. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? As far as like, Oh, okay. He's in like the Southern town and like, I can kind of like, you know, relate with him. You can't relate with him at all because the, he is a caricature and 
a lot of these other characters, you know, caricature or whatever they, you know, whatever you want to call them. I think that's what makes the movie work is that you got people that, you know, I think most of the country is not going to relate to. And so they're not going to find any of it like offensive or, you know, feel the one way or another because you see kind of both their sides throughout this entire movie where you got a guy who's from New Jersey and things are a lot faster there and a lot, you know, different. And then you got kind of like the sleepy town where, you know, they got their ways and then you got this guy coming in here and it's kind of like, well, who the F is he? You know yeah. what I mean? Exactly, exactly. And you even have that with the two defendants. You know, Stan fires Vinny and gets the public defender. And when, you know, Vinny gets up there and, and hasn't gone yet, the public defender gets up there and completely bombs because he has this incredible nervous stutter. And he just it's like five minutes of this guy cannot get a word out without doing anything, you know. And then Vinny steps in and completely destroys the witness with the whole grits thing. It's like, you say it takes five minutes, but the rest of the grit eating world says it takes 20. You know, and I mean, that's hilarious. But is that true, Jay? Is that true? Uh, if you're going to do uh, straight grits that aren't instant, yeah, about 15 to 20 minutes is what it takes. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> but uh, I know plenty of self respecting Southerners that do instant grits because we ain't got no time for that either. So, <laughs> but anyway. Um, I do like that though, that he will proves himself and his faith is restored, you know, and so they, you know, get rid of the public defender and, and it's all about Vinny now. And his, you know, cross examinations are really good. Like he does a really good job the next day and everything's going well and he's not in contempt <laughs> finally of court and everything's good. But boy, I love the phone call Trotter lays on him at night he's like all right you did good today yankee but let's see what you do tomorrow and i love how he's not being ugly about that he's just picking with him he's like okay yeah that was pretty good let's see what you do with my you know special witness tomorrow and he calls in the fbi analyst james rebhorn who's a great character actor been in a hundred things and uh, i i know him you know probably most people know him best from independence day where he's the the guy that, you know, prays next to Judd Hirsch and he's like, I'm not Jewish and nobody's perfect. You know, so he's that guy, but he, he's great. And he comes in and he does this whole bit about the car and like, he thinks I'm going to be able to get him on technical testimony. You know, this is what's going to finally you know, nail it for him. And, uh, they go to lunch recess and Vinny's like screwed at this point, right? He doesn't know what to do. Yeah, totally. I mean, he gets this guy who comes up there and is just, he's like one of these like perfect witnesses for the prosecution where he's just relaying like every little bit of information that they want the jury to hear that there's no way anybody else could have done this. This is, you know, yeah, you got all these people that maybe have, you know, their, their testimony can be a little bit shaky or whatever, but it's, you know, what he's saying is fact. It's yeah, not opinion. The tires are an exact match and all this stuff. And I love how, you know, Mona's trying to like you know, relate to him and help him, you know, whatever. And he like blows her off at that point. Yeah. He's like, I don't need. And when he finally realizes that the answer is right there under his nose, it's that picture of the the tire tracks going out of there. There's something wrong about these tire marks. So what we come to learn or whatever is that this is it's all going to work out. Is that he has to drag her back in to be an expert witness on this. But in the meanwhile. He like gets the sheriff to go, Hey, go see if this has been, you know, 
uh, somebody in the Pontiac car has been arrested in another county nearby while we're in court doing this. He finally gets her on the stand. And it is some of the best comedy in the film is when you have her and him and like, she's like totally, I don't want to talk to him. I hate him. And the judge is like, you have to answer his questions that the fact that like he had no idea they were together. I'm like, she comes in like draped on him every day. <laughs> How do you, and she's by the way, does anybody in your town look like her? And she's been sitting in the front row for two weeks. How do you not know that they're together? Yeah, I think it's yeah, I know it was kind of that part, but maybe he was doing that for the uh the court to know and yeah. also for it to be on record. My my favorite part though is um when the uh prosecutor though was questioning her on her like expert, you know, <laughs> expert opinion, so to speak, and like He's asking like all this stuff about like what what's the uh I don't know, like the timing yeah. <laughs> timing ratio of a of a three fifty or a I, I don't even know. I'm, I'm no, he's letting all the car lingo out and, and she's like they, they didn't do that in fifty five, they did it in sixty seven. And I like she just you know totally buries him and he's like, Yeah, she'll do. You know, <laughs> so which I thought was great. And, which uh, I even which I even wonder too if he was just like kind of like throwing stuff out of his ass right there as far as if he even knew that like it was a because he asked her the stuff about like a like a timing ratio on a certain engine in a certain car mm-hmm. and basically the thing is is like that model engine was not in that style car at that year so it was a trick question and I was kind of wondering I'm like does he know that or was he just kind of throwing something out just to see what her reaction would be I don't you know you can read it both ways I think he just threw a lot of lingo at her to see if she knew what she was talking about and the fact that she completely buried him then walked on his grave in front of everybody like that completely I mean totally sold him like okay yeah she can talk and what you find out is like my father's a mechanic his father was a mechanic all of his uncles are mechanic all my uncles are mechanics my three brothers are a mechanic and Vinny's a mechanic and i've been a mechanic when i'm an out-of-work hairdresser you know like that's that you look at this woman and you're like there's no way she knows how to do any of that but what's funny to me is having worked at a school where there's a big engineering school here i meet some of the female engineers and then i see them like do their work and then you go see them at like a career fair or whatever when they're really dressed up and stuff and you go that that woman like knows how to turn torque wrenches on rockets and stuff but yeah, they do you know it's you just don't think about it and i love that it smashes through those stereotypes that this woman just knows all this car stuff and what's funny is how he leads her through this testimony you know because what he wants to say is like it can't be their car because the card's only this but instead of he can't introduce that information because of course trotter will completely object to it so he has his expert witness look at the picture and go what i've been saying is that an exact duplicate car came and did the same thing you know did the crime and drove off is that right and she's you know she gets that look on her face like it's the same eyes she does when she does the deer. You get your friggin' head blown off scene, which everybody knows, right? Is is like, no, you're completely wrong. And she comes up with the whole, you know, there's two cars that could do this, a Corvette, which nobody thinks looks like the Buick Skylark, and then the Pontiac Tempest, which is pretty much the Pontiac Skylark. And so, cause GM products, you know, did this. And I love, I love the whole testimony there though. It makes it, it makes a ton of sense cause it's all forensic stuff. Like it's, it's the kinds of stuff if you watch forensic files and things that those people figure out, the scientists do. And the way that they get it out in court and the way she delivers all of it is funny and yet completely believable too, because you watch the case unravel in front of the DA and his expert, the FBI guys going, yeah, that's right. You know? Yep, definitely. Now, my question, though, too, is like, I, I know Jack about like <laughs> law procedures. Is that something you can do like a surprise witness? Is is that like, well, it actually, is, 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 is that real that you can actually do that? I always thought like the witnesses had to be announced before the trial. So that way, you know, both the defense and the uh, 
and the prosecution could basically ready their questions and you know t- you know for for the witness. Your argument is exactly what uh, Vinny's argument is in his objection here, and everything I've read is that Vinny objects exactly right. That's exactly what he should be able to do. It can be allowed if um, what would normally happen is if the judge allows that, then they put a continuance on the trial till the defense can prepare their own expert to come and counter all of it. If he lets it go that day, most of the time they'll say, we're going to put a hold on this until later. Uh, if they deem the expert is right, usually they take the jury out of the room and then they'd go, okay, is it, what is this person's qualifications? Like the jury rarely ever gets to see that, you know, cause you don't want the jury tainted by how an expert comes off with a lawyer or anything like that. Like you would take them out of the, the courtroom and you would sit there and go, okay, do you know what you're talking about? And then you'd bring them back in and go, this person's somebody you can listen to. So that's usually how that would go. I think what we're supposed to take it as the shorthand of it here is, cause again, you know, a lot of, uh, even, you know, the late judge Antonin Scalia said he loved this movie for how its procedure was so sound. He said, in this case, what you have to accept is the fact is that even though Vinny's exactly right and the judge says that's a great argument no it's just a backwater judge going nope and you know he just has to take one on the chin because sometimes that happens too it's more of a if the court deems the witness is valuable information they'll go ahead and let them testify anyway so uh in in real life, you know, if Vinny had to go and find like you know Marissa Tomei's dad to come in and do the testimony or whatever, then he would have had plenty of time to do it. They wouldn't have rushed the trial. But as it turned out, yeah. he knew somebody that could counter it. So and put plus also, what about the relationship between those two? Considering that the that know, would have been a conflict yeah. of interest. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> so, considering that the, yeah. the that the, the the star you know witness here, the top you know the person with like the, the I, most important testimony of the entire thing is like the you know. The, it's uh, not it's defenders. not it's not perfect but it's more accurate than a law movie like say a few good men which is a good drama and a good play set to a film but it's a terrible legal <laughs> procedural because it none of that could happen the way that it does in that movie and so especially the courtroom scene so i you give it that gimme in the fact that it needs it for its, its third act reveal here. And and really what you're watching is the same cute argument that the two of them had on the bed at the end of the first act in the hotel. You see, like she's, you know, starts relating to him because he's pulling information out of her and together they're, they're solving this. And that's, that's the ultimate end of all of this. And so, uh, I mean, yeah, I mean, I love it. I love too, though, how after all that, uh, the judge is like, he has to call the uh, DA to order and like slam his gavel and like, Hey, are you paying attention to me? You know, after all these times he's had to bust Vinny on it and, uh, they just dismiss the charges immediately. So uh, it's, uh, I, and then even after that, the judge is like trying to calm everybody down, like still trying to maintain order in that, you know, chaos, uh, courtroom there. Yeah, definitely. I mean, yeah, it's, Stuff like that was going through my mind, but I know like probably the you know everybody else is like, dude, this is a comedy. Yeah, yeah. You, again, you yeah, can't but- you, you can't expect this to be like, you know, something that's so freaking serious. I mean, there's there's serious movies out there like you know like like you bring up like a few good men or mm-hmm. uh, Time to Kill or something, which I'm sure would get a lot more wrong just in the sake of drama. Yeah, I mean, yeah. If you want to watch good like court drama, there are other places to go and get that or whatever. This is taking enough of it that it's authentic. Like you can buy it and you see, and because the funny thing is, is the fact that Vinny is so not used to all this procedure is good comedy. So they just use the natural elements of the court to make comedy work. 
he doesn't know what he's doing. So of course he would screw it up. <laughs> and that's funny, you know, to the average American. Cause some of that stuff, I mean, honestly, think about some of that procedure. It seems like we're going way around ourselves to get to the, these guys were not even, they didn't even know they were arrested for this, you know, but we play the procedure for the comedy. And my other question too is, um, I know there was like, there's this whole plot within the movie about him not giving his real name to the judge. Oh, yeah. It was like, yeah, the, like the, it was Jerry Gallo, which is supposed to be like Jerry like Galloway and stuff like that. But like, yeah. is, is that something though where like you can only like practice law in certain states? Like you have to pass the bar in certain states to be able to practice law or you, uh, that's. You generally have to pass the bar or you have to have an exception from one state's bar to the next. Now, some states will like accept the bar from like California to New York and things. I, yeah, that's a bad example. I don't know if those are two that do it, but. They, it's kind of like, it's a bad way of saying it, but it's kind of like hunting licenses are good in, or uh, concealed carry licenses rather are good in some states, but not other states. You know, like the Alabama one you can take to Texas with you, but you can't take to another state. So, you know, it's, it's some of that works that way. It's generally the, a lot of times is the purview of the judge involved and the serious of the trial. Like I know, I remember in the OJ trial, one of the lawyers had to uh, resit for the bar. What Kardashian did, but somebody else had to to resit for the California bar because it had been so long since they had practiced law in California that it had lapsed. So I, I, there's exceptions that can be made for it, but like this is taking advantage of the fact that there's no internet and that you have to wait two weeks to get a fax from somewhere, and it gives another reason for Mona to come up with an excuse. This the thing is though is like the thing she does is the thing Vinny should have done to begin with. He should have. This judge friend of his and said, I need you to cover for me for this judge because otherwise he's not going to let me try this case. And he obviously would have done it because he does it anyway. So, I mean, <laughs> honestly, he does something kind of unethical. So, because uh, at the end, you know, Vinny's trying to get out of there and everybody wants to hug him and talk to him. He's like, Yeah, I'll see, I'll see you later. You know, and he's trying to get the hell out of town. And the judge finally catches him and says, yeah, Win some, lose some. You're a whale of a trial lawyer. And he finds out that Mona called his, uh, his old judge friend and he gets like pissed about it though. He's like, I wanted to win this one by myself. And she was like, Oh yeah, it would be so horrible to have to say thank you to somebody. What a terrible day. And then I love how she plays it off on him. He's like, well, I guess you know, this means I've won my first case. Now we can get married. She's like, Hey, you can't even win by yourself. You're freaking hopeless. So and uh, I love that it ends on the joke though, between the two of them, because my wife and I had that kind of banter with each other too. And so I just, I just chuckle at it because it is so much like my real life. So uh, but I, I think it does make them cute. I mean, you're talking about two leads that are 22 years apart in age and, and an inch apart in height. Uh, guess who's the winner in that one? And so it's hard to think of them as romantic together, right? Like Joe Pesci's not a romantic lead. Uh, yeah, I wouldn't say he's, he's your typical <laughs> romantic lead there considering his, you know, his back catalog of movies usually has him on the kind of the bad end of relationships. Yeah, he's usually beating somebody or like, you know, getting it from a hooker while he's talking about shooting somebody in a car. You know, that's that's his usual romance. <laughs> it is, it is. But yeah, I, I like the way the movie ended too with them. You know, you got to end it with a little bit of banter and everything. And I, I think the banter, I mean, we kept on saying it's like kind of like a, a Jersey thing to kind of use that <laughs> phrase, but it, it is, it's kind of like your typical married couple or, or, you know, couple that's been together for a while or, you know, it, it is all a lot of arguing, but it's all like, you know, within 
good fun in a way. Yeah, I mean, they t- she talks about how they've been together for 10 years, and that's why her biological clock is ticking and all this stuff. You know, I mean, I, I found all of that to be really funny. I, I enjoyed that. So uh, I was glad that they played it off, and they ended us on the joke. You know, they're heading out of town together, and it's all just a big joke. And so I... I dug it. And then we kick into that Southern rockabilly Travis Tritt song with little feet, you know, and which is, you know, one of the, there was a time in soundtracks when people wrote a song for a movie that was essentially, let me sing you the plot of the movie. And if you listen to that song, it's from her point of view. So you and Travis Tritt now have something in common. You've written plot summaries from the point of view of the female character in a male driven comedy. So congratulations, Nick. I know that's exactly what you wanted to hear today. So, it, end, it ended my weekend perfectly. I'm Jay. telling you. Well, I think we're at the part of the podcast where it's time to give final thoughts. And, you know, if you're new to the show here, folks, we give things popcorn ratings from extra large to small. The bigger, the better. So, Nick, what are yours for my cousin Vinny? I'm going to go with the large popcorn. I, I had a lot of fun watching this movie. And um, there's not many movies that I get done watching where it's like, you know what, I, I'd like to watch it again. And this is this is one of them where it's kind of like, I can see this being like one of these movies that really doesn't get old where there's just a lot of like fun stuff in here, a lot of fun banter, you know, maybe not a movie you're going to sit down and like watch thoroughly, but you know, something you could just kind of like throw on when you want to fall asleep at night. And I'm not saying that in a bad way, just something that's kind of, kind of like a comfort food in a way. So it kind of keep, kind of, kind of keep it Southern there. So yeah, yeah, definitely. A, it's, it's a strong, large popcorn. Really liked it. I like your comfort food metaphor there. It's like grits and baked potatoes and bacon and greasy eggs. It, it is kind of comfort food. And it is fun. And I'm surprised at how well it does hold up being 25 years old at this point. Uh, you know, just you never think about it. But uh, it's one of those that came. It was a big hit. And it obviously got, you know, a, an actress a big award and launched her career. And, you know, definitely did a lot for Pesci. And it's come and gone. And maybe people forgotten it. But it's definitely worth revisiting because I do think it holds up in spite of the fact that it is so dated by its tech and and all of its fashion and everything else you could still relate to all of it because the center of it is still very funny and again i think the performances here we can't say enough of it everybody here is really good at playing what they're supposed to and i think marissa tomei if she won an oscar for anything it wasn't the times when she had her hair all done up and was being crazy jersey girl i think it's for those times when she's in the hotel and she's got all that stuff off of her and she's being very real with him and trying to relate to him and help him and yet she's still incredibly funny in those moments and uh I think it's it's definitely worthy of a large popcorn and certainly something I'm glad we revisited and got to talk about here on Filmstrip. Folks, we are in the midst of 2017 here. Lots of cool stuff going on on Filmstrip. You can find all of our past episodes on our website, continuousplaypodcast.com slash movies. You can also now find us on Stitcher, iTunes, obviously, and Google Play. And since we're new to Stitcher and Google Play, give us a good positive review. It'll help other people find the show. We certainly appreciate the support. Nick, we've got lots of fun stuff uh, planned for the rest of the spring and summer here so thanks for joining me on this one we'll look forward to having you back again soon until next time folks for nick i'm jay thanks for listening to filmstrip thank you for listening to filmstrip you can find more episodes on our website continuousplaypodcast.com forward slash movies please leave us a positive review on itunes and link up with us on facebook The Filmstrip theme music is produced and performed by Frozen Lake 121.